chapter 31 this evening. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, and we come now to chapter 31. If you're with us tonight and without a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and wave to them. They'll get one into your hand. It'll be marked to our passage, and I, I do think we're more lost in the Sunday evening than even the Sunday morning without a Bible because we cover a little bit more territory. If you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, tonight. So we come to chapter 31. We notice the first phrase uh, that, uh, that the Lord gives here, at the same time. At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. When he talks about at the same time, what is he referring to? He's referring us back to the latter part of verse 24 in chapter 30, which talks about God speaking prophetically of the future of the nation of Israel and the Jewish people in uh, the last days as he's laying uh, out uh, the, uh, the future history of Israel and the Jewish people. Uh, this chapter describes uh, a future time. Uh, there's a near fulfillment, as we noticed last week, a near fulfillment having to do with their return uh, from their Babylonian captivity back into the land of Israel. But the fuller and fullest uh, fulfillment of these two chapters, 30 and 31, will yet occur in what's known as the kingdom age or the millennial reign or the thousand-year reign of Christ. They all speak of the same thing in which Jesus, when He returns at His second coming, uh, touches down on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem on the eastern side of, of Jerusalem. He comes into Jerusalem at His second coming by way of the battle of Armageddon. He does not touch down in that valley as he wipes out those three great armies that have assembled together in order to fight one another. But when they see Jesus becoming present, uh, their hatred for him is greater than the, even their hatred for one another. They will attempt then uh, to fight him in this battle. It's really not much of a battle. Uh, out of the sword of Jesus' mouth, the entire armies are wiped out, uh, and, and the uh, blood flows, the Bible says, as high as a horse's bridle, the entire length of, uh, of the valley there, the Jezreel Valley. Speaking of the bodies that will, will be heaped up in that, Jesus speaks something out of his mouth like, I don't know what he's going to say, but it isn't like he's going to be wrestling with them or something. He just says something like this, and uh, all of it's all over. And then he comes into Jerusalem, and he establishes his uh, thousand-year reign, his millennial reign, uh, within uh, ruling the world from, uh, from the city of Jerusalem. His second coming occurs at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, and uh, specifically at the end of the last three and a half years of that seven years, which is known as the Great Tribulation Period, when at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period, the Antichrist allows the Jews to rebuild the temple in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. At the halfway mark, he walks into that rebuilt temple, a temple that represents the God of the Jews, walks into the Holy of Holies, which is intended to represent the very presence of God. He plunks himself down. He sits down in the Holy of Holies and declares himself to be God and uh, demands to be worshipped as God. The Jews will realize that they've been uh, badly fooled uh, by the Antichrist and uh, and they'll suddenly realize instantly we're in trouble here and begin to flee for their lives from a great persecution that the Jews will, that the, the Antichrist will then uh, uh, meet out against the Jews in an attempt to destruct, uh, destroy them. So they're scattered out throughout the known world as a result of that. And so this now speaks about not only the Jews coming back into the land following the Babylonian captivity, but God bringing them from that uh, dispersion throughout all of the land uh, during the Great Tribulation period back into Jerusalem at a time where we'll see in just a moment or two they will recognize finally Jesus, uh, uh, not individually or one at a time as, as happens today, but as, as a people they will recognize Him finally as their uh, promised 
uh, uh, Messiah. So at that time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. It occurs in an in a, uh, incomplete kind of fashion following the Babylonian captivity. They're cured of their idolatry. Uh, they're, they l- l- return to the Lord in the way that they hadn't in a long time. But at the end of the, at the second coming and the establishment of the kingdom age, uh, the full fulfillment of, I will be the God of all of the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when I went to give him rest. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore with loving kindness I have drawn you. The fact that they would come back into the land following the Babylonian captivity, the fact that they will be drawn back into Jerusalem and the land of Israel at the end of the Great Tribulation has nothing to do with their worth. It has nothing to do with their merit. Uh, the reason God could have washed His hands of the Jewish people a thousand times throughout their history, even up to this point in their history. The reason that God was going to bring a happy ending into their life following the Babylonian captivity and the Great Tribulation is as He describes here, the fact that He loves them with an everlasting love and with loving kindness He has drawn them. Again, when we look at the book of Jeremiah, I don't think we can say it enough. When I think in our minds most often as Christians, we look at it and we think of it as a, uh, a book of judgment, that God is just really super steamed with the uh, southern kingdom of Judah, really, really upset with them, and He's going to hammer them and uh, send them into Babylon, Babylonian captivity. He's going to chasten them, and He's going to discipline them, but He loves them. And God's commitment to the Jewish people, and He maintains a commitment with the Jewish people. Again, it's important to realize this doctrine that is known as replacement theology uh, that is widespread within the body of Christ today, that is that God does not view the Jewish people uh, as, uh, as a particular group. Yes, they have to be saved the same way Gentiles have to be saved, but He still has the time of Jacob's trouble. He still has future plans for the people of Israel. And so many within Christianity look and say that God's done with the Jews, He's through with them, and then all of the promises that you read in the Bible that are toward the Jews, those are simply our promises as as Christians, and and He's done with them. And that's a very uh, um, incorrect understanding of the Scriptures, and usually people hold that view because it accommodates other things that they want to believe that that would violate if they held on uh, to any other position than that. When God called the children of Israel and He made them unique in all of the world, uh, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. He did not choose the Jews as He, as he spoke to them in the law. They might, it, it's easy even for us as Christians, but I mean you can give the parallel related to the Jews. But when He called them, and He called them His people and His special people, He let them know it wasn't because you're so special. It wasn't because you're so great. It wasn't because you were so mighty or you were so lovable. I love you because I am love. That's who I am. And this commitment to you and this relationship that I have with you is never based at its core on what you are or what you aren't. I love you. That's why I called you into this relationship. And so even as they go as sideways as they do before their Assyrian captivity and Babylonian captivity, never in all of this judgment that God takes them into does He ever cease to love them uh, because He is love and His commitment uh, to them. In, In our own relationship with the Lord, if we don't understand that, that God loves us because He is love, because He has chosen uh, to love us. He will never stop loving a person even if they reject His Son and the salvation that is offered. Uh, they, will, uh, they will lose the privileges of salvation. They will go into judgment as a result of it, but God's love for the person is never affected. Uh, God's love for us is never affected by our obedience or our disobedience. The blessings that come from God 
the ability to receive the blessings that He has for us, to be on the blessing side of His commandments, all of that is affected by it. But His love for us, it never changes in the midst of any of it. And so, the motivation for obeying Him and so forth is not to get Him to love me more. The high motivation that we have for obeying God's commandments is to express our love for Him, and we love Him because He first loved us. If this were any other way, if God's love for us changed on the basis of Uh, what we did or didn't do, or how good or bad we were within a given hour, then we would have no foundation for being secure in His love. It's the one thing that He wants us to be secure in, that whether He's got us back in the woodshed and He's given us a good whipping because we deserve it, or whether we're doing a group hug with Him at the moment, His love doesn't change. Uh, and, and we're just forcing him and, and as a father to um, express his love in the way that uh, how I'm conducting myself allows him to do that. And we know any of us that have raised children, we know that sometimes the love is expressed in giving them some kind of a desire of their heart, and then other times it's not only expressed in an equal form but in an even superior way when we take them aside and we're forced to discipline them because of something that they've done wrong and something that needs to be corrected in their life. And so God's commitment to them, His commitment to us in the New Testament as well, He says, I have loved you with an everlasting life, and therefore with loving kindness I have uh, drawn you. Again, I will build you, He said, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Uh, and uh, it's a lot for God to speak uh, concerning Judah and the J- Jewish people at this time, speaking prophetically, calling them a virgin. And the idea is spiritually. They are committing sp- uh, spiritual harlotry and adultery uh, for uh, years and years and years before the Lord, but He sees them on the other side of their chastening when they do return to Him. And so, he's able to refer to them as uh, the uh, O Virgin of Israel. And so, they'll come back into the land. It will be rebuilt, not only following the Babylonian captivity, but also after the Great Tribulation. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines. In other words, there'll be a return to joy to the land and shall go forth in the dances of those uh, who rejoice. And so, everybody's going to know how to dance in the millennium. Now, that may not be excited for you because maybe you have natural rhythm. For me, this is very, very exciting. I probably post it on YouTube, whatever I'm able to do here ultimately. No, but there'll be the return of joy in, in that season, celebration. And you shall yet plant vines uh, on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. In other words, during uh, the kingdom age and then when they come back into the land as well after the Babylonian captivity, food would be plentiful. For there shall be a day when the watchmen shall cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise and let us go to Zion uh, to the Lord our God. And so that hasn't yet happened among the Jewish people yet. Imagine now we're talking about watchmen, watchmen on the wall related to Jerusalem. Their position was to be there to watch for a danger, watch for attack or invading armies and so forth. That's what uh, their responsibility was in kind of the normal ebb and flow of, of uh, human history. But during the kingdom age, there won't be a, a need for anyone to watch for any kind of hostility or any kind of war or anything like that. And so these watchmen will just, uh, they'll just become, their position and responsibility will be uh, to simply invite people into Jerusalem now to worship the Lord Jesus during the kingdom age. Jesus will. There won't be nations in the way that we think of nations today, not exactly during the kingdom age. The entire world will be governed by Jesus, and there's reasons for it. We'll get into it when we get into Ezekiel in a, uh, uh, someday. So w- when we get there, we'll talk a little bit about it. But 
but um, he will rule, he will reign with absolute righteousness, he won't put up with any uh, kind of nonsense, but all this kind of hostility, the reason that you have uh, a border patrol, the reason that you have a, a military in a nation, the reason that you have policemen, none of that will be required at all. Wouldn't it be something if uh, you think about it in our day, if all of our uh, border patrol or security or our U.S. military and all of its different branches and the police, imagine them being put completely out of business. There is no use for them. And so they say, what in the world are we going to do? Uh, point people to Jerusalem and tell them to come and worship the Lord. It's going to be very, very different. Um, it'll, it, it might be fairly boring for, uh, you know, the press uh, just to report, you know, good news again today all over the world. Uh, we'll love it, but uh, that's, that's the position they'll hold. And then speaking here in verse 7 of Israel being regathered uh, into the land. For thus says the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, gather them from the ends of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, the one who labors with child. Uh, bring them all together, and this great throng will then return back into the land after uh, the Babylonian captivity ended supremely, after the great tribulation, and they shall come with weeping. In other words, they will come back into the land with humility uh, before God and with supplications, I will lead them. They will be thankful uh, to the Lord at that time. They'll be cured of uh, their apostasy and rebellion against Him. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am the Lord, I am Father to Israel, and Ephraim uh, is my firstborn. Uh, hear the word of the Lord, O nations and declare it in the isles afar off and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Uh, on the near fulfillment uh, from Nebuchadnezzar and the strong hand of the Babylonian empire, ultimately to uh, bring them back into the land from out of the strong hand of the Antichrist. And in verses 10 and 11, the Lord is making a proclamation to the whole world uh, of the fact that He is bringing His people back into, uh, into the land. And He's basically um, protecting their reputation. Now, imagine you put yourself in the place of the Jews. We live in the United States. It's not a theocracy. Uh, so, uh, the parallels aren't exactly right. But let's say a generation of Americans came along where we became so debauched, we became so consumed with our own selfishness and our own self-rights and our own uh, partaking of sin and so forth that ultimately we lose the nation. We get conquered by another nation, and we are driven out of this nation and so forth. Well, there would be the personal shame, I mean, or the personal pain that we would be experiencing by virtue of the fact that we no longer live in the United States. Now we've been, uh, you know, dispersed into some other part of the world. There would be the individual hardship that we would be uh, facing. But the greater issue that would also occur is the whole world would look and say, who in the world were the people that became so sinful, so rebellious against God, so self-absorbed, so rebellious against God that they became displaced and lost the treasure that was the United States of America. I mean, we, none of us would want to admit that we were a part of that generation. And then to be the Jews who did it with the land of Israel in the light of the covenant that they had with God. And God says, when I'm going to bring you back, I'm going to announce that I have done this and that I, have, I am doing this because of my love for you. I'm taking the shame off of you for your past. And so he announces that this is what 
uh, the, what He has done for them, and He comes in and He protects uh, their, uh, their reputation. And therefore, they shall come and sing in the height of Zion. Zion is another term for Jerusalem, streaming to the goodness of the Lord and uh, coming there to uh, worship God, uh, uh, blessing the Lord for bringing an end to all of their hardship on the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment, blessing, uh, streaming to the goodness uh, of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil, the prosperity of the era, for the young of the flock and the herd. Uh, their souls will be like a well-watered gar garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. And so there will be this season when uh, they'll not only uh, prosper materially, but they'll also uh, prosper uh, uh, in, in materially, but also prosper spiritually as well. And then, I, then shall the virgin, speaking, uh, then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, and young, uh, the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy, will comfort them, and will make them rejoice rather than sorrow. So you put yourself in kind of that uh, Old Testament uh, context of, you know, six, seven hundred years before, uh, uh, before Jesus comes, and the agrarian society, the tribes, the families, the rejoicing, the feasting, the families come together, the Jews come together, the young, the old are all together, and so forth, uh, celebrating. And so, uh, that same imagery, the Jews are going to uh, celebrate that day, for I will turn their mourning to joy, uh, will, uh, for I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied uh, with uh, my goodness, says the Lord. And so here, again, God prospering them, celebration back into the land, um, and, and uh, the restoration of relationship with God. All of this in verses 13 and 14. Beautiful picture of hope for uh, any Christian who finds himself backslidden and wonders, will God t bring me back? And can He, uh, you know, restore the years that the locusts have eaten up and so forth? And here is what uh, God was eager to do for them, and it's His same heart toward us uh, even uh, today. And then as we come into uh, verse 15, we've got a record of uh, the sorrow and, and the weeping and the repentance of uh, Judah related to their sin as they're being taken captive ultimately uh, by the Babylonian, uh, Babylonians and, and how God will one day cause that sorrow to end. For thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, uh, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel uh, weeping for her children, Rachel uh, speaking of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, a mother to two of the tribes of Israel, speaking of the totality of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah. And here is Rachel refusing to be comforted for her uh, children because they are no more. Um, when, uh, when Babylon conquered Jerusalem, uh, they then began to pull all of the people out of the city and began to divide them and so forth to lead them into captivity. You have um, <laughs> kind of a, a scene like if you've ever seen movies on the Holocaust where um, they're brought into the train stations and mothers are divided from children and wives divided from husbands and they're powerless to do anything about it. And, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the revelation of how powerless I am to stop what is going on, the worst thing that I could ever dream of happening, our family is being splintered away, my children are being taken away from me, not from the men it speaks about, but it speaks about the maternal heart of women, and their children are being taken away from them. This whole separation was going on uh, at the city of Ramah. 
And, and so here are the mothers seeing here the consequences of the sin, now the family being destroyed, the children being taken away. Will we ever see them again and so forth? And, and the greatness of the sorrow where uh, the mother would refuse to be comforted in any way as she sees her children being taken off uh, by these Babylonian uh, soldiers and, and warriors. There was no word that uh, could comfort her. She looks and says, they are no more. And the Lord in the midst of this entire scene, and again, I, I don't, it, it would be interesting if somebody were to, able to have a $200 million budget and put something like this on the screen, but just to see how absolutely horrible this scene is within our mind, the separation that is occurring there, the, the emotion of the, of the parents and so forth, and then the worst thing of all begins to hit them, and they realize all of this is not happening because of the Babylonians. Babylonians. All this is happening because I would not turn from my sin and keep Israel a place that God could continue uh, to uh, uh, bless. It's the same thing that happens when a man or a woman backslides from the Lord. The family is destroyed as a result of it and so forth. And then to live with that for the rest of your life, that that was something that you played that part in. Nothing can console me. Nothing can comfort me. Nothing can take that guilt of that in re responsibility off of me. But God can. And that's why in verse 16 he speaks to them in the midst of all of this emotion. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future. Isn't that a wonderful thing to underline in the Bible? The Lord speaking to them in a scene like that, there is hope in your future. Maybe that's for someone here tonight, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. God was letting them know that uh, their sin would not have the final say in their family or in the nation, or, uh, but that He would have this final say and they would return to the land. Now, chapter, uh, verse 15 of the chapter, uh, some of you might recognize that uh, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 18, that he quotes this uh, uh, verse uh, 15, and he quotes it associated with the slaughter of all of the children aged two years and younger in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth uh, by King Herod in an attempt to kill another king that might threaten him and attempt to kill Jesus the Messiah. And so Matthew quotes uh, verse 15 here because he sees the sorrow uh, experienced by Israel at the time uh, of the slaughter of their uh, children at the hands of the uh, Assyrians and the Babylonians, and he sees all of it as a type or a picture of the sorrow uh, of the mothers at the slaughter of the innocents there in uh, Bethlehem. It's interesting as, as Matthew uh, quotes that in an attempt to give us what would have been very understandable to the Jews. And remember the gospel according to Matthew was written principally uh, to uh, speak to the Jews. And, and so Matthew brings the intensity of this scene that they all would have uh, recognized uh, from their history to give them a sense of the anguish that the mothers and the parents went through at this horrible slaughter of uh, of King Herod uh, in, in Jerusalem, or in Bethlehem. But he doesn't mention, uh, he doesn't go on, he only quotes verse uh, 15. He doesn't go on and then quote uh, verses 16 and 17, apparently because uh, rightfully so, he viewed the passage as, uh, as having its fullest and ultimate fulfillment uh, later in, in the future. And, and so here is this, uh, this hope that God speaks into the middle of, of a horrible uh, emotional and physical and mental place that they would find themselves in. God is so gracious. The book of Jeremiah, it records judgment, but it is a testimony supremely head and shoulders above the message of judgment about the love of God and the grace of God and that He would not let them go.
And how many of us in the privacy of our own heart can look back and say, God, I got through that because you would not let me go. had nothing to do with my determination or my strength or my ability. It was you that did it. And, and it's, a, it's a strong, beautiful picture of the greatness of the love of God. In verse 18, I have surely heard Ephraim uh, uh, bemoaning himself. You have chastised me, and I was chastised like an untrained bull. Restore me, and I will return, for you are the Lord my God. And so here is uh, Judah and Israel's uh, repentance as they go into the, Babylon, into the captivity, and they realize, I'm like an untrained bull. I was living… This is the thing that goes on once the judgment hits, and the things that we got to think about ahead of time and not after the judgment hits. They realize, I'm living like an animal God. I mean, why couldn't I face it? Why didn't I listen to you? Why didn't I wake up to my condition? I lived like an animal, like an untrained bull and in the way that I was living. But your chastening of me, it's opened my eyes to the shame of my condition. And then the plea, restore me and I will return, for you are the Lord my God. And here now is that strong desire, Lord, restore me. I'm done with my sin. I'm done with my own nonsense, and, and I, want, uh, I want you to be the, the, the Lord God of my life. And surely after my turning, I repented, and after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. And so again now, they go into captivity. And then there's all of this blaming everybody else for why they were defeated by the Babylonians, but God had been telling them why all along. And then as, as days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, months turn into years, it begins to dawn on even the most stubborn of them. No, we are in this captivity. We are in this place that we are, are in because of our own sin and then sensing the shame and the humiliation of it. But again, beautifully, and it's true related to our own lives, as the person kind of reaches this e emotional depths and, and spiritual depths where you would look and say, there's no hope for me after what I've done and all. That how could God have anything to do uh, with me? The Lord goes on and says, is Ephraim my dear son? Isn't it beautiful? The Lord speaks. This is my son. And, and is he a pleasant child, speaking of the Jews? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still, and therefore my heart yearns for him, and I will have mercy on him, says the Lord. And here in all of the rebellion against God, all of the sin, the idolatry, the wickedness and all, God had never ceased uh, to love them and longing for them to repent so He could restore them into relationship. It reminds us, I think, uh, uh, strongly as we think about the parable of the prodigal son in the New Testament, talking about uh, the debauched son of the two prodigals as he goes out into the world, disrespects his father in horrible ways. Uh, for that ancient culture, takes all of his money. I don't want to wait until you die to get my inheritance. Give it to me. I'm going to go out and make my own way. Spends all of it, reaches the same kind of a shameful place that uh, Judah does uh, here and, and uh, the northern kingdom of Israel as well, and then wonders, what will be the heart of God if I return to Him? And, and then uh, here, the same thing. I mean, in the parable of the prodigal son, the father comes running to the son. It's the only place you see uh, the image of God running in the Bible, and it is running to restore a repentant son into fellowship with himself. And it's the same heart. Sometimes people look and they say, well, you've got the God of the Old Testament, you've got the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament's a lot nicer than the God of the Old Testament. He could be pretty cranky. He had to walk on eggshells, you know. It isn't. It's the same God, the same heart. And so the Lord never ceased longing, uh, loving Him, never ceased longing to restore 
the Jewish people. True, related to the Babylonian captivity. True, it will be the heart of God when the Jewish people as a whole return to Him at the, uh, 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 at the end of the, the great um, tribulation. And then the Lord, uh, He gives His invitation uh, to them to return, set up signposts, make landmarks, set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel. Turn back to these your cities. How long will you gad about, O you backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a, a man. And so here's the invitation to return. And again, the mention of her as the virgin of Israel. Um, uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we sin and we ask for forgiveness, he no longer sees uh, our sin and uh, sees us once again fresh and clean in the righteousness uh, of Christ, the fresh start that he gives us and that he uh, will give them uh, as well. And so he, he talks about how long will you gab about, oh, you backsliding uh, daughter. Israel had treated her uh, relationship with God the way that, you know, kind of a, a way that a silly young girl uh, might treat a suitor as something to be played with, something to be messed with, a heart to be broken or not be broken at the whim of, uh, of, a, of a, young, uh, a young woman in this way. But God is declaring here that one day all of that, that immaturity of, in their relationship with God, that one day it would be replaced with a maturity in the relationship with God and a sobriety in their relationship with God. When it talks about a woman shall encompass uh, a man, the idea of encompassing, um, when I, I uh, am maybe walking through the kitchen or the living room, I rarely say to my wife, Karen, please come over here, I want to encompass you. Uh, the word that we use is to hug or to embrace, and that's how the word is, is uh, used here. And it would have been a very great role reversal uh, for that culture. Uh, a woman, that is Israel here, uh, will choose and cleave to a man, that is the Lord. And so the, the beautiful miracle uh, of God ultimately bringing them back, and we'll see it in the future in, the, in an even uh, greater uh, message. The uh, land of Israel again supremely in the kingdom age. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, they shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and in its cities. When I bring uh, uh, back their captivity, the Lord bless you. And, uh, and, and the idea is that talking about God, caring about God, loving God, uh, trying to encourage other people in their own relationship with God, that will once again mark uh, Jerusalem. Remember, they were idolaters when, when they left. And Jerusalem then will become the home of justice and the mountain of uh, holiness. And so it will become known, the land of Israel, Jerusalem itself, will become uh, filled with a very sincere love for God on the part of, of people. It will be known for justice. It will be known for holiness rather than idolatry, rather than uh, hypocrisy as it had been uh, when, when they went into uh, their, uh, their captivity. And, uh, and so, as, as we look here and look at the far fulfillment of it, just as the Babylonian captivity uh, cured Israel and uh, Judah of her idolatry, the great tribulation will help to cure uh, people, uh, the, the Jewish people, but really all the people of the world of their pride, uh, their selfishness, their wickedness, their sin, and so forth. At the end of the great tribulation period, they will have had their fill of sin, and they will have so seen what life apart from God actually is when He removes His protections and the influence of His Holy Spirit within the world, that the whole world, including the Jewish people, coming out of the tribulation period, they will long for Jesus to rule and to reign. They will long 
for holiness to mark the world. They will long for righteousness to mark the world. You know, people play games today, and there's this great war that's going on, and it's a cultural war uh, for the soul of our country, and, and this war is going on all around the world in various countries to take uh, a nation toward God or to take it away, uh, further away from God. And those that endeavor to pull our country away from God, it's all nonsense and forget about it, and we're smarter than that Bible, and we've got ideas too, you know. It's, I'm, you know, I'm smart too, and, uh, and, and they start to elevate this kind of, of stuff. Well, the cure for it is coming one day when God will simply step back during that seven-year period in a way that He has never done before in, in removing the full expression of His Holy Spirit in the world. They can have their taste of their grand experiment, but at the end of it, they will not love their wisdom they will not love the world that they have produced, the life that they have produced for themselves. Uniformly, there will be a longing uh, for Jesus to come back, put an end to all of it, and then for Him to rule and uh, to reign and to establish a world in which crime is not allowed, wickedness is not allowed, none of it will uh, be tolerated. And so one day there will be in that kingdom age kind of a, a little taste of heaven, uh, this, uh, uh, this side of heaven in, in that, that reign. And they shall dwell, uh, there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all of its cities together, farmers and those going out with flocks. For I have satiated the weary soul and replenished every sorrowful soul. So farmers and flocks will be blessed. Um, you, you can imagine what um, kind of almost like an end of the world scene was in Jerusalem when they fell to the Babylonians. The virtually the entire population, you know, is being uh, taken away and people dispersed. The land is, a, is an absolute desolation uh, because the Babylonians have come down, cut down the trees, burning things down. The city is just like a, a you know, a post, uh, you know, an ap apocalyptic kind of of picture of all of it, and this is what uh, they're going to see. And the Lord says, no, one day they're going to be the farmers, the crops, the flocks. They're all going to come back uh, into the land. And after this, Jeremiah uh, said, I awoke and looked around, and my sleep was sweet to me. So Jeremiah is receiving this revelation by way of dream. He wakes up from it, ending the revelation that God had given to him, and uh, it was a good dream. It was a good dream and that there was a happy ending uh, to it. And Jeremiah said, I woke up from this, this sleep of revelation and my sleep was sweet to me because I see that God will have the final say and it will be a good say among His people. And then verse 27, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house uh, of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. The land will be filled with people and animals once again, and it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy and to afflict, that so I will watch over them to build and to plant, uh, says the Lord. So as severe as God's uh, chastening had been upon them, God said He would uh, now bless them with, with a comparable uh, strength. Isn't that a wonderful uh, word to the children of Israel and, of course, to any backslider today? And in those days they shall uh, say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children, uh, children's teeth uh, are set on edge. Doesn't sound pleasant, does it? Uh, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats uh, the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set uh, on edge. And so this was a, a proverb uh, in the ancient world that when a father ate the sour grapes, there he is, he's eating the grapes over here in the living room, and the children's teeth are being set on edge by the sourness of the grapes. And the idea is that the children suffer because of the decisions of their parents. And that certainly is very, very true uh, at times, but it is 
equally true, and this is what God is bringing out here, it's equally true that children very often blame their parents for what is solely their responsibility. And so, uh, it becomes… blaming of parents becomes an excuse for their own… the children's own poor decision-making or uh, a lack of of, uh, 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 character or work ethic within the children. And so, the child who attempts to blame all of the adverse circumstances of their own poor actions and poor decisions and, and blaming all of it upon their parents and their upbringing. That's what's being condemned here. And of course, this kind of thing is epidemic uh, today as well. It looks as if what God is saying here is that all the way uh, to the end, the destruction of Jerusalem, that the people of Jerusalem were insisting that if tragedy hit the nation, it couldn't be because of their sin or their wickedness, uh, that any judgment that would come upon Jerusalem uh, wasn't their responsibility, but rather it had to be the pay, somehow they were paying the penalty for the sins of their fathers. And what God is coming in here and saying is that that saying that you use to hide from your own personal responsibility, uh, nobody's going to say that uh, in uh, the kingdom age. Uh, at all because everyone's going to be responsible for their own judgment. Again, Jesus will reign with a perfect righteousness. Men will be and women will be chastened or punished for their own uh, individual decisions, their own iniquity, not for the father's sin nor the father's being blamed uh, for their children's sin. And so, it will be wonderful in the kingdom age that uh, as Jesus rules and reigns, there'll be no blame shifting that goes on. Uh, Everything will be clearly seen. Isn't it one of the frustrations of our courts is that things come in and it's a he said, she said, or this group and that, and they have so much trouble trying to figure out what's the real deal here and how do you uh, judge it? How do you rule that? that, and the Lord won't have any problem doing that on an individual level or on an international level at all. Everyone will be responsible uh, for uh, their own uh, actions. And behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, verse 31, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Moses. That's speaking about the Mosaic covenant, the covenant based upon the law of Moses. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, uh, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. It won't be on the tablets of stone, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man uh, his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them uh, to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. It's a very, very significant uh, series of verses here, in, uh, verses 31 through 34. And again, it speaks of something that is yet future. Uh, uh, for uh, the nation of Israel as a whole, the Jewish people as a whole, we don't see uh, this yet, where they uh, turn to the Lord in this full kind of way that is uh, described here. We see individual Jews today recognizing Jesus as their Messiah, uh, but for the nation of Israel as a whole, the Jewish people uh, as, as a whole, uh, that isn't the case. And it won't be the case until Jesus' second coming at the end of the great tribulation after the Jewish people have suffered uh, mightily for their rejection of their true Messiah, Jesus, and put their faith in the Antichrist for their future and their welfare and for the rebuilding of the temple, and they realize we have put our trust in exactly the wrong person. Uh, Jesus uh, spoke related to this in John chapter 5, and He spoke to the Jewish people, and He said, I have come in My Father's name, and you do not receive Me. Another will come in His own name, and Him you will receive. See, the Jewish people have a problem today, and that is once you reject Jesus, once you reject your true Messiah, 
then you, what happens to the Jewish people is they don't stop looking for their Messiah. Uh, they reject Jesus as their Messiah, but they still are looking for the Messiah, which means they're actively on the search for uh, anointing and crowning someone who is not the Messiah. And the Antichrist is going to step into human history one day and may not be too very far away. He's going to allow them to rebuild their temple and somehow be viewed as the Savior uh, of, uh, of the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. Um, it, this, it doesn't mean as God, uh, Jeremiah speaks here of this new covenant with, with the Jewish people, it, it doesn't mean that uh, the Jewish people are going to at that time be saved as a group. Um, every single person, Jew or Gentile, we're all saved the same way, by individually putting our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness uh, of our sins. But what it does speak of here is that there's going to be a universal knowledge of the Lord and that Jesus is the Messiah during the kingdom uh, age and that He is uh, their promised Messiah. So you have here an Old Testament snapshot of what we're very, very familiar with uh, in the New Testament, and that is an Old Testament snapshot of uh, the New uh, Covenant. And for those of us who uh, choose to trust in Jesus for salvation at that moment in time, as most of us have in this room, and we trusted in Him uh, and He became our Savior, then we entered into this covenant that is spoken about here in, in these verses here in uh, Jeremiah, and we've entered into that covenant as Christians. He describes and it's important to recognize it here, when Jeremiah lays out this new covenant that, uh, that, he, that God is going to establish with the children of Israel, that there is going to be a new covenant, a new contract, a new agreement, a new standard for relationship between God and the Jewish people, that he will not always conduct this relationship through the law of Moses, but that he will establish a new covenant important to understand, but that's an Old Testament under, understanding. It's one of the great verses in the entire book of Jeremiah. Why is it significant for us in, in, is new, uh, in the New Testament, uh, in, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament Christians? Because it tells us that when Jesus came on the scene in Jerusalem and in Israel 2,000 years ago and declared the fact that He was coming now to establish a new covenant, He should have never, ever encountered any resistance by the Jewish people. God had spoken famously through the prophet Jeremiah that one day He would establish a covenant through the Messiah that would supersede the covenant or relationship based upon the law of Moses. They should have rejoiced in Jesus. They should have seen it, uh, His establishment of this covenant in His blood, in His death, His burial, and His resurrection as an evidence for being the Messiah rather than resisting Him. What did they do? They resisted Him as if Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, verses, uh, 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 chapter 31 verses 31 through 34 didn't even exist in the Bible, as if Jer Jesus just came up out of the blue and said, oh, by the way, I'm supplanting the law of Moses in terms of a relationship with God, and uh, I'm going to establish a new covenant. They were expecting or should have been expecting this thing uh, to happen. This new covenant, he describes it in, in uh, two significant ways here, and that is under the new covenant that the law of God will no longer be laws that are outside of us and on some kind of stones, that God is now trying to change our lives 
from the outside in through uh, the law of Moses, but that the law will be of God in this covenant will be internalized. This new covenant uh, is in contrast to that law of Moses. So here you've got the law of Moses written on stone, and now the new teachings related to uh, the new covenant, these things are going to be written and are for us as Christians written upon our hearts. And obedience now in the new covenant is no longer going to be related to a law or commandment that is external to us, on the outside of us, but there will be a law written in our hearts that God will put there by His Holy Spirit, and there will be a longing to obey and to keep that law that God has brought inside of our lives by the Holy Spirit. Paul put it so perfectly in writing to the church at Philippi when he said, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. And under the new covenant, the Holy Spirit has come into our lives, and He speaks the law of of Christ, the law of the Word of God, the living law of the Word of God, tells us what to do circumstance by circumstance based upon God's Word, and then He gives us the desire internally to keep the law of Moses. He tells us here that the, the covenant that would come would contain two gifts at once. Uh, forgiveness, as he talks about that, my covenant which they broke, he speaks of in verse 32, and again in verse 34. This covenant will bring a, a, a forgiveness of sins that was not found uh, under the old covenant. Under the old covenant of the law of Moses, uh, sins were never washed away. The most that the sin offering and the various sacrifices could do was to provide what the Jews called a kofar. It was a covering for sin. Sin was never washed away under the old covenant. It was merely covered, and it was a speaking to the people, the Jewish people, that this is incomplete. One day there is going to come a forgiveness of sin that involves a complete cleansing of sin under the new covenant. And so, uh, this forgiveness of sin was something, a complete forgiveness was something that the Jews never understood in the way that we do or experienced in the way we do under the, the new covenant. And then, as he speaks in verse 33 and again in verse 34, that this new covenant will allow us to have a one-on-one -on -one personal relationship uh, with the Lord. And, and God says, I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so we know uh, all of this was provided to mankind, uh, as I said, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is received today because the new covenant is, was established by Jesus 2,000 years ago. We entered it into this new relationship, this new covenant with God by putting our faith in Him for the in Jesus for the forgiveness uh, of our uh, sins. Now, again, Jeremiah and others, they prophesied uh, uh, through the Old Testament here that this new covenant would come, it would supersede uh, the old uh, covenant. And again, they should not have been surprised when Jesus came on the scene and declared that this was what uh, He was going to establish. Now, Christians, we already uh, participate in the benefits of this new covenant and uh, Israel in general uh, will come to see uh, Jesus as their promised Messiah after His second coming. Yes, there are Jews who trust in Him today. They're Messianic Jews. They believe in Jesus as their Messiah. But when we talk about uh, the greater whole of the Jewish population in the world, they will come to see Jesus as their promised Messiah after the second coming and during the kingdom age, because Jesus will then rule and reign over the world from Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 is important related to all of this, and the Lord declares, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And then speaking of the Jewish people, 
then they will look on me. This is Jesus speaking, Messiah speaking to them prophetically. At that time, they will then look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for the one uh, for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And in that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And in that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. That great uh, awakening, that great revelation in terms of Jesus as their Messiah will for the most part occur at this particular time in their history at the end of the great tribulation. But none of this should have surprised them. Incredible revelation concerning the new covenant. And as it's described here and elsewhere in the Old Testament, only Jesus fulfills the description as the one who could establish that uh, covenant. If Jesus isn't the Messiah, nobody's the Messiah. And thus says the Lord who gives the sun uh, for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night. He's the one that controls the, uh, the day and night who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. And if these ordinances depart uh, from me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall cease from being a nation before me forever. And uh, thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the fountains of the earth searched out beneath, I will also be cast off of all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord." So again, God communicates, I am not done with the Jewish people. All of these things are going to occur, and uh, it, 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 these, th these things are… Uh, man is not going to be successful in any way of circumventing these things any more than you can and I can stop the sun from rising in the morning or setting at the end of the day, or any more than we can uh, search out uh, the, uh, the, the heights of the heaven or search out the depths of the sea. In other words, God says, all of this is going to happen. I am not done with the Jewish people. And behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built for the Lord uh, from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The surveyor's line shall again extend straight toward over the hill of Gareb, and then it shall turn toward uh, Goath. And so he's talking about actual landmarks that were in Jerusalem at that time. Uh, remember, Jerusalem was completely destroyed ba by the Babylonians. Jerusalem is going to be completely destroyed by the Antichrist uh, and in the Great Tribulation uh, period itself. But here is the recognition that on uh, the, the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields uh, as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down any more uh, ever. And so once Jesus returns, establishes His kingdom from Jerusalem, it will never again be known for wickedness, for idolatry, much less for burning their children unto Molech and so forth. It will be a place that will be known for uh, holiness. And so we finish these uh, two chapters here, 31, uh, 30 and 31, that speak to that same issue. Uh, sometimes it can be hard, especially if you're new to the Bible, uh, to kind of follow all of this kind of thing in terms of near fulfillment, far fulfillment. And the subject of prophecy in the Bible is very, very interesting, but it does require a little bit of study and work at it to, to understand how all of these pieces fit into place. And believe it or not, I've just done an, an overview of these two chapters uh, for 
people that really want to get into prophecy and tear into this thing in terms of what it looks like in the whole prophetic picture. It is an amazing, amazing uh, uh, study. And uh, so, but it is, never be disheartened where you say, I don't even know this. I went to this church over there. I was just looking for a cool place on a hot summer night, and he's talking about near fulfillment and far fulfillment and Babylon and the great tribulation and talking about a kingdom age and, and, and so forth. And he, just, he lost me within five minutes. Well, that's what I do. That's what I do uh, week in and week out. But, but you will know a little bit more tonight than you knew before. And, and piece by piece, these things will fall into place. And this is the only way that it, that it can happen. Let's stand together tonight. We'll close in prayer and thank the Lord for uh, this new covenant. Father, thank You for Your Word. And as we look at the book of Jeremiah and, and um, uh, the, the depth of it, the variety of what you address within it. And, and we think, Lord, not in terms of what is most interesting to us or what kind of, uh, you know, excites our heart or our mind. It's enough for us to know that it is important in your mind that we as your children would understand uh, these things, to know is for the most part, as Gentile believers, a little bit about the tree that we've been grafted into and to know a little bit about your plan, not only for the Gentile world but the Jewish world and how to process their rejection of your Son by and large today and where all of it ends, Lord, and for our hearts to be broken over how deep the waters will be that they will have to uh, walk through in order to be uh, broken from their pride and from their tradition and to be willing to recognize the Messiah that is so obvious in light of the Scriptures. And Lord, we thank You tonight when we know that each of us, we're no better than anyone else. We're no worse than anyone else. We're just a part of this big mess, this fallen place called planet Earth. And Lord, eternal human beings that You have created. And we bless You for Your interest in us. We thank You for the old covenant and what it did in preparing the hearts of the world for the Messiah that would come and the new covenant that would come. We thank You tonight. We bless You as we already have, Lord, from the bottom of our hearts for this new covenant and for the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Savior to make it possible. Thank You, Lord, for planting Your law and writing it on the very fleshly tablets of our heart, working in our lives in such a way that it becomes the joy of our life to obey You, providing us both the will to do and the power then to do it. Thank You, Lord, for the forgiveness of sins. And thank You not only for the forgiveness of sins, but that all of that opened us up to the intimacy of a one-on-one -on -one relationship with You. And Lord, whether we, as we leave this place, whether we have two quarters in our pockets to rub together, we will leave counting ourselves to be the most richest people in the whole world because of who we are and what we have, because of the sacrifice of our Savior, the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins, and then His resurrection three days later. And we say, Lord, now in prayer what we sang to you early, uh, earlier in the light of all of these things. We say hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lord, for how good you have been to us in your Son. And we bless you and we praise you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.